all, and thank you all for being here. Once again, I'm Hannah, I'm the pastor here. I wanted to just note, um, Zoe talked a little bit about clearness committees. So for those of you who aren't familiar, um, a clearness committee is a Quaker spiritual practice of uh, having a small community, usually two to six people, um, of people who have experience or training in it, um, ask you open, honest questions about a topic of discernment you have before you. So if you're like, should I take that job? Should I move to that state? Do I want to, I don't know, move into the forest forever and go off the grid? Um, whatever it is that you're discerning, whatever it is in front of you, or if you simply have um, an unsettledness in your spirit and you want to discern where is that unsettledness coming from, what is it? Um, it's folks who will ask you open, honest questions, and open, honest meaning not leading, right? There's no advice, there's no telling. It's questions so that you might find um, the spirit as it is speaking through your soul, as it is speaking through the movement of your inner voice, um, as God often does speak. And we have a couple folks within the wider urban village community who have a lot of experience with clearness committees, and they have offered um, to try and arrange some clearness committees for folks in the community if that would be of interest to you. Um, we're trying to... Exactly when it'll take place will depend a little bit on how many they are because they are an hour and a half of like very intense emotional experience. But if you would be interested in a clearness committee, please write that on your tear off and we'll be in touch with you. And then the second thing um, I wanted to say before we pray and begin our sermon, um, our, our meditation on what's happening in this letter of John, is that um, some of you may have seen this video that just happened a couple days ago of these teenagers surrounding a Native American elder in Washington, D.C. and kind of screaming at him and mocking him um, as he is doing activism. Um, and a, a lot of the focus has been on the wrong actions of those teenagers, and they are wrong. And I hope that those teenagers um, are held accountable by their community in a way that allows them to move forward, right? And to change and to find a new way forward. Um, but, but something people haven't been talking about as much as something that I think is true, which is that um, if there's a bunch of teenagers in the world who think it's just fine to disrespect and denigrate Native people, it's probably because we as a culture and a country and a church have taught them that. Um, and so I wanted to just reflect a little bit, just for a moment, um, on Urban Village, on Urban Village Wicker Park, where we are, the land we stand on, the place we are in this moment. Because we're in the Chopin Theater, for sure, which is a beautiful place. Um, but the Chopin Theater is also a place that resides in the traditional homelands of the Three Fires Confederacy, the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi people. This place, Chicago, the, that word is an Algonquin word. This place was for um, hundreds of years a site of trade, gathering, and healing for more than a dozen other um, tribes and nations. This is also our state of Illinois, the territory of the Ho-Chunk, the Miami, the Inoka, the Menominee, the Sac, and the Fox people and their descendants who continue to exist today and who continue to um, make calls and claims upon this land and this place and what it owes them and what it means to them. In the 1830s, most Native people were violently ejected from the city of Chicago, but that didn't um, keep them uh, destroyed any more than any of our other attempts at genocide have. Right now, there are um, 75,000 Native folks in Chicago who represent 175 different tribes and nations. Um, and they're doing stuff. You can go to the American Indian Center. <laughs> you can go um, to many different organizations in the city and learn about um, what's going on for Native and Indigenous folks in the city. Uh, and that is happening and that is real and that is our history. And so I wanted to just honor 
uh, this land and like who it belongs to and who we belong to and the things that we should be thinking about rather than you know, always projecting what other people are doing wrong. What can we think about? So that's our land. And now, if you would pray with me, I invite you to pray with me. God of grace and mercy, God of surprises and wonder, God of clearness and fuzziness and muddiness, God of show tunes, God of all things, God who has put into us spirits of creativity and spirits of desolation and sadness. We are facing all the things today, God. We are living life, which means we are having trouble deciding what to eat for lunch and trouble deciding what to do with our lives and trouble deciding how to be in a world that is big and wondrous and filled with pain and filled with joy. And so we ask you to meet us on that path. The scripture says, oh God, that we love because you loved us first. You loved us first in Jesus. You loved us first in creating us at all. And so into our bones and our blood and our soul, may we feel you and your movement. May we be guided by who you are, which is love. And in those moments where we aren't, where we lack love, where we deny love, where we twist love, as we will, because we do, we ask your help in forgiving ourselves and moving forward into a new direction where love would light the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in this discernment sermon series, and for those of you who don't know the word discernment, it's basically just a Christian word for deciding stuff, <laughs> um, making big decisions. And so y'all have heard about a couple of my big decisions, a couple of big decisions of the church. Um, there's always stuff facing us. Some of you right now might be joining me in the middle of a Daniel fast. And if you're not on that fast, you're welcome to join at any time. Just because you didn't join day one doesn't mean you can't um, join in the next two weeks of it with us. And the Daniel fast is a fast from royal foods, however you define them, in the model of Daniel, um, who fasted from royal foods because they were sacrificed to idols in the book of Daniel in the Bible. And so I have been not eating meat and not eating sugar, um, which has been reminding me of how much sugar there is in the world. <laughs> um, it's a really good lesson about that. But also of how little I think about God during the day because the fast is making me all of a sudden do it all the time. I thought that I thought about God a lot, right? I'm a person who prays. I'm a person who um, sees wonder in a lot of things. I'm a person who, like, is professionally obligated to think about God for a pretty high percentage of my day. Um, and yet, until I was doing this fast and every time I'd almost reach for something and then remember that I'm not eating it right now, I am reminded that I'm doing that for God and because of who God is and because of who God has been to me, being reminded that many times a day has made me realize how little I think about God at all and how little I think about what I'm thankful for and how little I think about what joy there is and what happiness there is. And so um, if you haven't fasted, I would, I would invite you to join that fast with us in whatever way is healthy for you, right? So some people are fasting from screens rather than food, or some people are fasting from mirrors because you find yourself um, drawn away from God by worrying about your appearance, um, or fasting from being mean to yourself for a little while, right? Mean self-talk, fasting from social media, whatever it is that would help you to remember who God is and who God has made you to be, I invite you. 
So you've been hearing about some of my big decisions, and today, um, relationships are one of the biggest decisions that I hear people doing a lot of discernment about, right? Um, should I keep dating, or is it an endless morass of sad Friday nights, and I want to abandon it? This is a very frequent pastoral care coffee that I have, so if you have had that thought, you are not alone. <laughs> um, I am dating someone, but is this really the relationship I want? I like a lot of things about them, but I don't feel like, yes, I want to be with them forever. Um, Am I someone who can do or believes in monogamy at all? Am I ready to get married? Am I ready to make that kind of promise? How involved should my family be in my relationships? Or should they not be, right? Like, these are the kind of everyday places of discernment where we find God and where we often um, find ourselves uh, bewitched and besorcelled in how to move forward. And a big moment like that for me was when I chose to get married. Um, so my husband and I met in our dorm in college, um, which means that we were extremely young when we started to get serious. Um, I was 22 when he asked me to marry him, which, you know, we had sort of decided that we were going to get married before that, but we put aside a little special moment of surprise. Um, and, and I thought that we had done a lot of the things that you should do when you're discerning a big relationship decision like that. Um, we had lived very closely together and seen one another's habits. We started dating when he was subletting a room in my apartment, which is a, you know, like, got to be all in if that's <laughs> when you start. We had lived apart and seen how we handled distance. I had had to move for another country in our, to another country in the course of our relationship, and we saw whether our communication was good enough to handle that. We had handled um, family members dying, job loss. We had supported one another financially. Um, we had talked about the big stuff, you know? We talked about kids, and we talked about money, and we talked about how do we want to spend our leisure time, and we talked about what kind of house do we want to live in. All the things, we were both big overthinkers, and so all the things that any list on the internet said, like, talk to a person about this before you decide whether or not to get married, we had done that. <laughs> we had prepared. Um, and I had prayed about it a lot. I prayed almost every day for months about whether this was the person and about whether marriage was right for me at all. Um, I, I took Paul pretty seriously and at his word that marriage makes ministry harder, right? Because it creates this dual obligation. There's this life you want to live. There's this thing you want to serve. And then there's this person to whom you have promised to live a certain kind of life with them. Um, and I knew that I was called to be a pastor. Um, and uh, Matt was not particularly religious. And so I'd have this same conversation over and over with him, um, which is not really about trying to change him so much as trying to make sure he knew what he was getting into. Um, or I would say, no, seriously, like, this is what pastors do. I will be at church all the time. Like, are you down, you know? Or I would say to him, if one day I am praying and God tells me, you are called to move to Ecuador to, like, do this, I will believe it and I might go. You know, I just really wanted him to be prepared for all of the things that might come of this and make a fully informed decision. And so we'd done all the things you're supposed to do in discernment, and we had made the decision. We had decided, no, we are going to get married. We are so in love. We have prayed about it. We have thought about it. We have talked about it. We've done the things. This is it. And we got engaged. And then, like a month before my wedding, I still had all those feelings of confidence. I felt like we had done the right things. I think marriage is sort of a fool's promise. You can't actually know how it's going to work out. But to the extent you can, I thought I had done the work. 
But I had in the back of my head this first John, right, which says, test the spirits. You think you know what the spirits are saying. You think you know where God is leading you. Test it, right? Do everything to look at it from every angle and to see is this where the Spirit of God is? Is this where God um, is leading you? And the way that you'll know is by love. The way that you'll know the signpost is by love. And I sort of felt like, well, I can see so much love on the path of being with this person, but I also can see lots of love on the path of having freedom and moving about in the world and doing different things and not um, having to account for two whole human beings' desires every time I make a decision. I could see love both ways. And so I decided to test the spirits by talking to my dad. Because I love my dad, and he is super supportive, but he is honest if you let him and if you ask him. And because my dad um, had had this 30-year-long marriage with my mother that produced kids and was this wonderful experience and like put all this love into the world, I think. But he had also gotten married when he was 18 years old and had a divorce shortly after. And I sort of knew that as like family mythology, but I hadn't ever talked to him about it. Um, and so I decided the last thing I want to do before I get married is the thing that scares me, right? I want to test this out. And so I called him and I said, like, you got married young. I'm getting married young. I want to give you permission to be totally honest with me. I know you support me, but like, are you worried about what I'm doing? Give me the straight, you know, like, give it to me. If there's anything that has ever made you concerned about this, let me know. And I was so scared <laughs> to make that phone call, to do that test, because I was pretty sure that I was on the path that I wanted, right? Um, and, and I didn't want to blow it up. And luckily, what I heard from my dad was this beautiful message about what love looks like, where he, was, where he basically said to me, you know, back in the time that I got married, I, <laughs> I had grown up in a really conservative Lutheran church, went to college, and I thought the first person you fell in love with, you married them, you know? Like, I, I, we didn't know each other. We, did, it, we hadn't done any of the things that you guys have done. We didn't have this solid um, relationship. What I see in you and Matt is a marriage. And so I felt confident, so I married him, and you just saw him, you know, wrestling with our children. Um, but I, I, what I remember from that is the, the confidence I felt from testing it to the end of where it could go. And the confidence I think I would have felt, right, um, say my dad had had different advice, then either I would have gotten the different advice and taken it and felt confident about that, or I would have gotten the different advice and listened to my soul and said, you know, even though you're telling me not to do this, I still know that it's the right thing. By testing it, I gained conviction and I gained confidence by testing those spirits for love, for wisdom, and for community. And so I think we need to be challenging ourselves to do that more in our discernment, to be testing ourselves, to be testing our decisions, because we're human. <laughs> and we can all screw up at any time, and we can all um, miss something at any time, and we want to be inviting um, more and more testing and more and more spirits into our decision-making process. But then the question is, what kind of testing? Because the other thing I do sometimes is I question a decision so much out of anxiety or out of fear, and then that stops me from moving forward at all, right? That stops me from doing anything. It stops me from being bold. It stops me from being the kind of Christian I want to be. And so I could call that testing, but somehow it doesn't feel as healthy. It doesn't feel as good. It doesn't feel as right. And so how do you tell the difference? What is a good testing of spirits? What is the kind of testing of spirits you want in your life as you make the big decisions that face you, whatever they may be? And John gives the answer at the end of the passage. Can we bring up the scripture passage again? 
um, which is that the kind of testing that is good is the test of love. <laughs> that fundamentally, the test we should give all of our discernment, all of our decision making, all of our moving in the world is how much love is in this? <laughs> how much love is in me as my motivation for doing it? How much love do I feel from God as affirmation of this being the next thing? And how much love will be created in the world out of doing it? I love this translation because it uses the word beloved. If any of you have read 1 John before, it's like, you know, probably one of the more obscure of the New Testament passages, so you might not have read it. Um, but often translations will uh, translate the word agapetoi, this Greek word, as dear friend. But what it means is one who is beloved. <laughs> John is just shot through in everything that he thinks about and everything that he um, wants to understand and wants to consider with this deep passion about God's love. And he says that's the ultimate test of everything, is where does love lie? How is love working? Where can love be found? And the kind of love that is of God, which means that the way we know about love is not, does it feel nice or does it feel floofy, right? Sometimes we'll sort of define love as like um, comfortable rather than like love. <laughs> but John is talking about the kind of love that is of Jesus, which leads you to walk up mountains and to go across rivers and to die and to yell and to cry and to flip tables and to be fully human. It's a love that is rich and a love that is bold. And that's the kind of love that God is talking about, that John is talking about, and God, through John. There are a lot of Johns in the Bible, so I like to sort them out a little bit. Um, three big Johns, trio of Johns. Um, one is John of Patmos, who, stuck on an island, exiled from his people, writes the book of Revelation, right? This incredible dream about what the end of the world may be. That's one John, John of Patmos. He's cool. We're not talking about him today. <laughs> then there's John the Baptist, right? Big beard, strong words, calls you a snake, pre-Taylor Swift, baptizes people in a river. John the Baptist is very cool. We're not talking about him today. We're talking about John the Evangelist, right? John the Evangelist, who wrote the Gospel of John and who wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, these three letters to different churches. Um, and, and that's four books of the Bible, four books of the Bible. And something that I've been thinking about a lot these last couple of weeks is um, other people who wrote a bunch of books of the Bible. Uh, so like Paul, for instance, right, who wrote Galatians and Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, who wrote all these letters, we have this really strong sense, if you've gone to church before, which you might not have. I didn't go until I was 16. It was fine. Um, you, uh, if you've gone to church before, you have probably heard someone talk about Paul as a character, right? Like, what was Paul like? What was his theological agenda? How do we learn about Paul? There's a strong sense of who he is as a person, of what his deal is. Um, people really wanting to, like, wrestle with him. Might be negative, might be positive, but hear a lot of talk. And I've been thinking, like, John wrote four books. That is no small thing. Why don't we talk about John that way? Like, why do I have so much less of a sense of who John is as a character, of who John is as a person, of what John cared about in the world? Why don't I have this picture of him in my head, the way that I do Paul or Peter or Doubting Thomas or any of these other guys that you hear a lot about? And I've decided that a big part of it is how they write is how they write and how they think about the spiritual journey. Because Paul has his faults, says things I disagree with. 
He is an incredibly linear thinker and writer, an incredibly prescriptive thinker and writer. So anything that Paul writes, it's gonna be a do this, don't do that. Here's what's right, here's what's wrong. Read the scripture, eat that food, don't eat that food. This is how we're gonna be as a community. It's very like direct, he is, he is um, and he's telling you what he thinks you should do, right? Which makes it very easy to react to. Either, yes, I agree with you, I should do that, or no, I don't agree with you, I should not do that. You are, I don't like you, Paul. Um, it, it makes it very easy to react about these specific prescriptions that are concrete, that we can imagine. John does not write like that. John writes like a poet drunk on love and the universe. John writes in circles instead of in lines. He's the most repetitive, right? It's not just this passage. It's um, in the beginning there was the word and the word was God and God and the word and the word and the God and the love and the word and the God. I mean, that, it's beautiful, right? It's like a meditation. If you ever want to get into a meditative state, that's what you want to read. You want to read John. But I think it makes it harder for us to put our hands around him and feel like we know who he is and what he's doing because it makes us nervous to think about a world where we're not told exactly what to do, where we're not reacting to a list and to a line, but where we might be surrounded by a sphere of love and power that could take us anywhere, right? That kind of love, it's beautiful and it's overpowering. John's vision and his intimacy with it is so beautiful, but it's also a little bit scary. We might wish for a little bit of Paul just telling us what to do instead of this sense of trying to touch lightning, trying to hold power and trying to see where love, this ineffable but extraordinary thing that God has given us, might go. So I think that's why we don't give John the credit. It's also why John is really, really interesting. I want to show you, this is something I didn't actually know until I was doing research for this sermon. A couple pictures of John from medieval times. Oh, this is that's we're going to talk about that in a minute. That's Martin Luther King. <laughs> that's not John. Um, so, in medieval times, so there's a long history that we can talk about in a different sermon when it's more topical of imagining John and Jesus as lovers. That's really interesting. That goes back literally 1,100 years. Um, but in every picture of John, he is pictured as sort of feminine. Um, he'll be younger, he'll be surrounded by things that would have been associated with womanhood. Um, he, and part of that <laughs> is because he was called the beloved and because he talked about love so much, people thought of that as sort of like a womanly thing. Um, and he became this focus for a kind of deeply spiritual, um, loving, meditative prayer that medieval folks thought was not um, manly enough for Christian men. And so they would sort of imagine John as this like androgynous, between genders person, so that when people were devoting and praying to John, they could let themselves go. When men were devoting and praying to John, they could get more emotional, and they could get more happy, and they could get more sad, and they could be in their feelings because he didn't have the gender stuff that they had going on, which I think is like fascinating on its face that we've lost all of these stories, but also a message about um, how many barriers we in society put between ourselves and intimacy with love. That you can love God and think that there's a wrong way to pray about that. 
that you can love God and think there's a wrong way to experience that. And so in our discernment, we have to be more trusting that love can guide us and love can lead us even if it's not a list and even if it's not a direction. We're going to be um, giving you some resources this week on Ignatian spirituality, which is a kind of spirituality that um, is entirely focused on looking for how the spirit is moving inside of you as a gift of love. When do I feel hope and faith and joy in the everyday minutes of my life? When do I feel depression and destruction and isolation in the everyday minutes of my life? And instead of judging that, what if I looked for patterns in that? And I thought, well, the patterns of the good stuff, the consolations, will lead me towards love. And the patterns in the hard stuff, the desolations, will lead me away. And if I keep trying to move in that, eventually I'll discern a place where God is living in my life and how to stay in touch with it more frequently. Love isn't easy to find. It's not a path that is drawn out for us and we follow the signposts and it's one by one by one and you either do it right or you do it wrong. <laughs> it's something that is more ever-present and bigger and so harder to find but more beautiful when you find it. We are invited into love. And as a last thing, I will now show you that picture of Martin Luther King. A love that is powerful and vigorous. Love doesn't mean lack of confrontation. We're going to talk more about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King tomorrow at the assembly that, we're all, that um, I really encourage you to go to. It's a beautiful worship service. Um, but just one thing that people tend to get wrong about MLK, he talked about love so much, right, that, that hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. That he saw the consequences of hate and the consequences of love, and he chose love. And people have often used those quotes to kind of make him into, like, a teddy bear of civil rights who, like, by being nice to people, caused them to abandon racism. Um, and, and for Martin Luther King, love was a force of powerful vigor that sometimes brought tension into your life, and yet tension could not make love go away. And he was a person who discerned his whole life. At the beginning of his career, he, was, he had this experience in a kitchen where God spoke to him and gave him his ministry. And he followed that call um, all of his life through the Montgomery West Boycott, through Civil Rights Act, through Voting Rights Act. He did this incredible work, but he never stopped asking himself, is there something I might have missed? Is there something more? And by the time that he was murdered, he had come to lots of new conclusions that he hadn't come to when he began his life in ministry and in activism. He had decided that the struggle was international, and so he had to be against the Vietnam War. He had decided that economic inequality was one of the great ways that sin made itself known in the world and that prevented people from um, being fully the free beings that God made us to be. And so he started the Poor People's Campaign, which exists today. He was drawn further and further on by love into places that were dangerous and places that were tense and places that were scary. But because love was what had drawn him, love drove out the fear of those things that usually keeps us from facing them. Love is a force of strength and vigor and wonder and light, and it brings all kinds of hope and happiness into our lives, and it might bring hard times too, but boy, is love better than the other direction. <laughs> I encourage us, whatever parts might scare us of where love leads, whatever parts might scare us of the uncertainty that love can draw us into, to take the words of John seriously, that love is the way God talks and is, and that love is available to us as a way not only to make decisions, but as a way to be and live in and be soaked in and be lifted up by. We would never be 
except for the love of the creator who made us. Let's live like that's true and pour that love out into the world. Amen.